Well, I was thinking about what to talk about this morning. It's really a continuation in a certain sense of what we were talking about last week and probably next week. In this time of year, when really we have the least light of the whole year in, in the Northern Hemisphere, where it's, we have more dark in the day. And in these particular weeks, in this very day today, we have the uh, almost the darkest of days. That comes actually a week from tomorrow is the darkest of days, <laughs> and the and the actual summer solstice, winter solstice is um, on Friday the twenty second at eleven twenty two a.m. The particular tilt turns around, so we'll anticipate it a little bit by two days with our vigil next week. But tonight is the dark of the moon. So there's no moon at all tonight. Um, if you go out tonight and the sky is clear, there'll be wonderful stars. But the dark of the moon in the darkest month of the year, in a year that's been more challenging than any year I can remember, um, probably for many of us that's true. Um, and here we have been... Um, planning the the vigil for next week that we'll stay up all night together. <laughs> and uh, Mark's question about what, what's the purpose of staying awake, and uh, which I, happy, I was happy to have, because I want to really talk about uh, this whole practice as being the practice of staying awake, so that we'll really see what's true. Um, it's very hard to look life fully in the face, so to speak, and see the great suffering in the world and not get completely overwhelmed by it and also see the extraordinary beauty of being alive and the extraordinary potential of being a human being. There's, for me, that a really um, crucial center place, I, I, I actually don't know there's a center place, but it's an orientation place where I, I try to where I trust I can live, that sees enough of the suffering to cause me to have my heart open to it and respond to it, and enough of the glory so that I'm not totally dissolved in despair, and enough of the hopefulness and faith in the potential of the human heart to respond with kindness so that I don't <coughs> give up. And either end wouldn't be balanced only to see it as incredible arisings wouldn't be enough. And only to see it as the suffering that it is wouldn't be enough either. Because the, if I only saw incredible arisings, I might not be aware of the suffering. And if I only saw the suffering, I don't know that I could stand it. We had a teacher meeting the other day of the Spirit Rock teachers faculty. We do this Four times a year we spend a whole day together. And one of the topics that we talked about together is how are you feeling uh, September 11th now? How has it changed your life or you? How do you feel it in your life? Especially how do you feel, how do you feel it in your life? And one of the things that I said is that I am quite sure that I have not taught a single class, not here or anyplace else, not given a talk here or anyplace else, since September 11th, that 
September 11th has not come into the conversation one way or another. Don't think it's, it has just, even that I haven't planned it, it has not been possible for that to happen. It is so much the context of our awareness. And it's, for me, it's not September 11th that's, it's not limited to September 11th. It's, it's as if the event of September 11th has so thinned the veil that protects us from seeing the suffering in the world, really torn it, that we, for myself, I, I, it's hard to see anything without seeing past it into the sufferingness that also exists. Part of, I think, the, I, I don't even know if I want to call it the process of healing, because I don't know that I really imagine that that veil can be put back together, or even that I want it to be. But that somehow that we sh- part of the process of sustaining the heart so that we can really see with that clarity of vision the pain that human beings cause each other that is the consequence of ignorance on everybody's part. And the dedication that would come from that to make it a different world so that that didn't happen. I don't want that that veil to get thick again. I want us to be sustained with hope and confidence so that we'll be able to. So I thought that in these weeks um, we would have that challenge for ourselves of how will I stay awake? Literally. And how will I manage to do that? And who will do it with me? Um, When people have asked me, thought about it a lot and thought about it a lot, what sustains me the most of, of but the variety of practices that I think of as making up my life? What has sustained me the most? And I, in, especially in these last few months, and I think clearly what sustains me the most is my connections. You know, I talk to my friends, is what I say. I talk to my friends. The fact that I exist, as you do, in networks of people who love each other, is, I think, what sustains me the most of everything at all. I want to talk about confidence and hopefulness. I want to talk about, um, I thought the, the, the theme is a theme, if I, if I had to make a name for what we're talking about. We look at each other and I recognize that this is a community of people, some of whom I know a long time, we've been together for years, maybe 10 years, some of us. Many of you know each other. And people come newly, and we introduce ourselves and feel that, I hope you feel as well, part of this community. And sometimes people come up often and say, you know, I've been here two or three weeks, but somehow I never got a chance to come up and introduce myself. I'm so-and-so. I feel very happy when I feel that we think of ourselves as needing to introduce ourselves, that we are that we are part of a community together. Because I think of us as a community of people vowed to stay awake. Um, I talked to a friend of mine yesterday who's a um, Unitarian minister in Boston. And we were talking about staying awake. And uh, together while we were on the phone, we, she said, well, you know, the, she said, I think about the line of, uh, that's in three of the four Gospels. Uh, in the in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus says, "Who will stay awake with me?" We looked it up. It's in the first three of the Gospels. 
And so the question, I think, is who will stay awake with me? And as long as I know that there are people who will stay awake with me, or try to, that's enough. This morning, particularly, um, thinking about when we were here early, taking the precepts, that morning has become uh, so dear to me, particularly dear. Uh, we've been doing it probably for 10 years, as long as we've been meeting on Wednesdays, coming on the second Wednesday very early, and saying the precepts because I, I'm so touched by our shared motivation to tell ourselves out loud in the company of other people, I didn't behave as scrupulously carefully as I would have liked to. I made a mistake, and I'm really sorry about it. And recognizing that when we say that to each other, out loud, in a company of people who love us, we're less likely to do it again. So it's as much as saying, please be my witness community. You know, I really don't want to do this again. If I say it to people who recognize that they might, they also do things heedlessly, not from a place of wakefulness, then we feel forgiven and sustained in our dedication to do it differently, because I think forgiveness is crucial to that. So I've been saving a picture. It was in last, was in the New York Times, I, I'm pretty sure a week ago today. You know how there are photos sometimes, um, well, images, usually some photo of someone or something, sometimes an image that you've actually seen with your eyes, that stays in your mind forever and ever. It becomes the image of, the hallmark image of a certain circumstance for you. Like for many people, uh, the image that they remember of um, the funeral of uh, uh, John F. Kennedy was the image of his uh, very small son as the casket went by, saluting it. Even as I tell you, you remember, your hair stands on end when I tell you that, doesn't it? The image of the child, uh, the naked girl running down the street in, in road in Vietnam. We none of us can forget that. We will none of us probably ever forget the image of the planes crashing into the World Trade Center. It's going to be in the mind forever. This is an image of a little girl walking with her father. Uh, at uh, the, uh, her father's in a full police dress uniform, uh, wearing white gloves, little girl with this really long red party dress. The article about it in the New York Times talked about the uh, uh, memorial service, the, the, the honoring service they had a week ago on the day that this picture was taken. Uh, honoring, um, the, the police department has a, a ceremony every year where they honor policemen and women for heroism throughout the year. And most often it's people who have died in the line of duty. And, uh, the article was very touching because, uh, well, first of all, clearly it is very touching because it, it's incredible heroism and incredible stories of loss. And in most cases, the honoree is not alive, so that one after another they're announcing, accepting this award on behalf of Officer Jones is his mother, or his, accepting, is, one of them was is his father and his fiancée accepting the award. 
this man and his uh, child say, accepting the war, the, this medal for Moira A. Smith, uh, her daughter Patricia Smith, and her husband, Officer Brian Smith. It's this little girl, and she has the medal around her neck. And the medal is down to her ankles. You know, it's one of those ribbon medals. She's got a, and she's sucking on her finger. And um, it says on it, small, sad, and proud. And I thought, first of all, it tremendously touches me. My grandchild, is, my youngest grandchild, is about two. Now, she's a little girl. She's about two. And she could pose for this child. She's got the same hair and the same haircut. And I thought that I, I, I cannot hold in my mind even the possible idea that this should be my grandchild. You know, that it, but I think to myself, this is, I think, small and sad for sure, but not proud. Um, small and sad and bewildered and lonely would be more like it. You have to be older to be proud. That... Um, in order to be proud, you have to be grown up enough to have um, a sense of uh, right and wrong and a sense of justice or fairness or a sense of having lived up to something. I could see parents accepting on behalf of their child and saying, I'm proud of what they were. Um, but I can't think that this child is proud. I think this child is bewildered and lonesome and will be bewildered and lonesome forever in some way. It makes a huge hole in your heart. So I was thinking about uh, our own sense of bewilderment and proud or not proud of what we did or didn't do. We're all good people here, you know, people who come here. We are already vowed to wakefulness because we came here to begin with. I mean, this is an unordinary place to come on a Wednesday morning. I mean, (laughs) Uh, not like the gym, which I also go to, which is fine, you know. But I mean, it's an unordinary place to go and say, on Wednesday mornings, I go and rededicate myself to uh, hearing my heart so that I do the right thing. And particularly this morning when we took precepts and talked about those five precepts. I undertake the precept to refrain from harming living beings. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not freely given. I undertake the precept to refrain from sexual, incorrect sexual expression. I undertake the precept to refrain from incorrect speech. I undertake the precept to refrain from intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. Here we are, 10 years into our meeting together. We're still talking about what really is right speech? What really clouds my mind? What really is exploitive? What have I done wrong? I'm sh- I, I, one of the things that I have thought about a tremendous amount, I'm sure you have as well, since the event of September 11th, the events of September 11th, is what is my complicity? What didn't I do before? What could I be doing now more than then? It's 
been really hard. Uh, I wonder how many of you heard the memorial service four or five days afterwards in uh, San Francisco um, at Moscone Center. It was very touching. They had um, uh, clergy from a whole array of spiritual traditions making addresses, short addresses, and each of them was supposed to say something from uh, the, the context of their own religious practice. So Amos Brown, who's a very uh, passionate uh, Baptist minister in San Francisco, spoke quite strongly and passionately about uh, the sadness uh, that he felt, of course, about the tremendous loss of lives and the tremendous number of people whose families, everything that was completely terrible about that event. And then he talked quite straightforwardly about where he thought um, blindness had been present on the part of, in effect, in effect all of us, to have allowed a government to proceed to do what he thought were, was maintaining um, maintaining a climate in the world that gives rise to passions like that cause suffering. And it was hard to listen to. It's hard to listen to because I want my sense, and maybe yours, is I always want to feel well. It's other people's fault, not mine. You know, I didn't vote for those folks. Or, uh, <laughs> who made those decisions? And uh, it's not my. But one of the things that I've really been looking at is in what way is it mine, and what changes do I need to make? One of the things that's been, well. One of the things that's been very uh, uh, consoling to me and actually uh, inspiring to me is the fact that I think people are shaken awake. I think about who's going to stay up with me. I, in my most hopeful moments, I realize that I've had the feeling uh, often, as at least sometimes, that there aren't so many of us that have vowed to stay awake. And I have more of a hopeful sense that at this point this whole country is so shaken awake that it'll be hard to fall asleep again. And that uh, now's the time in, 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 a, in a sense for, um, for everyone to be really saying their piece, to do something to make a difference. In other, in other words, the, 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 my friends who have uh, generally, I've generally felt myself in my life on the, on the edge of the people who would, I think the edge has moved into mainstream. I think that I'm, uh, my dedication to the fact that people are fundamentally kind and if they knew what was true, they would do what was right, is stronger. I'll read you a page from, like this very much. How many of you are listening to, reading Thomas Friedman in the New York Times? It's really, I've, I've been very pleased with what he's been writing. It's talking about the flurry of, of uh, response and talk about how much people are ready to give in response to this. The, people are giving blood, people are donating to the Red Cross, people are giving time, 
people are volunteering. He says people could do more. Now would be the time to ask them to do more because they want to do more. He said, imagine if President Bush tomorrow asked all Americans to turn down their home thermostats to 65 degrees so America would not be so much a hostage to Middle East oil. Trust me, every American would turn down the thermostat to 65 degrees. Liberating us from the grip of OPEC would be our version of a World War II victory garden. Imagine if the president announced the Manhattan Project to make us energy independent in a decade on the basis of domestic oil, improved mileage standards, renewable resources, so that we Americans who have 5% of the world's population don't continue hogging 25% of the world's energy. Imagine if the president called on every young person to consider enlisting in some form of service, the Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, Coast Guard, Peace Corps, Teach for America, AmeriCorps, the FBI, the CIA. People would enlist in droves. Imagine if the president called on every corporate chieftain to take a 10% pay cut, starting with himself. So fewer employees would have to be laid off. Plenty would do it. I don't toss out these ideas, he says, for some patriotic high. There's a critical strategic point here. If we're going to be stomping around the world, wiping out terrorist cells from Kabul to Manila, we'd better make sure we are the best country and the best global citizens we can be. Otherwise, we're going to lose the rest of the world. That means not just putting a fist in the face of the world's bad guys, but also offering a hand up for the good guys. That means doubling our foreign aid, intensifying our democracy promotion programs, increasing our contributions to the world development banks, which do micro-lending to poor women, lowering our trade barriers for textile and farm imports from the poorest countries. Imagine if the president called on every U.S. school to raise money to buy solar power light bulbs for every village in Africa that didn't have electricity so African kids could read at night. Let every one of those light bulbs carry an American flag decal on it so when those kids grew up, they would remember who lit up their nights. The world's perception of us and our values matters even more now and it's not going to be changed by an ad campaign or just by winning in Afghanistan, as important as that is. It will be changed only what we do at home and abroad. This war can't end with only downtown Kabul on the mend and not downtown Washington, Chicago, and Los Angeles. Remember, the victims on September 11th were a cross-section of America, black, white, Hispanic, rich, poor, and middle class, and that same cross-section has to share in the healing. If we learned anything from September 11th, it is that if you don't visit a bad neighborhood, it will visit you. The greatest, first generation, greatest generation won its stripes by defending America and its allies. This greatest generation has to win its stripes by making sure that the America that was passed on to us and now now claims for itself the leadership of a global war against evil terrorists is worthy of that task. Mr. President, where do we enlist? Good. It was last uh, New York Times, uh, December 9th. December 9th. IED, IED. You can get this, by the way. Yeah, you, all you do is you uh, log on to www.newyorktimes.com. It will take you past 30 days. Thomas Friedman, September, uh, December 11th, 9th. And there you go. Um, I actually think, um, I think, I believe there are two things we have to do. Uh, I have to do. I have to do. I have to do more. I, I, I read this and I think, okay. Um, somebody told me a week ago um, 
if everyone in America turned down the thermostat, which I have now done, replaced all of their bulbs with fluorescent bulbs, all of the incandescent bulbs with fluorescent bulbs, and stopped driving SUVs, we would be finished with the, with, we would not need Middle Eastern oil. It's that easy. So I have turned down my thermostat. I have changed half the bulbs, but not all of them. Um, We have to think about these things. I think we keep it down all the time, except when we're in here, Michel. I'm pretty sure about that. I'm pretty sure we are, we are very sensitive to. We actually have more lights in here now than we need. We could turn out those lights. Um, thank you very much for that. Normally, we're careful about that. Um, if we said this, I, and I thought I, one of the reasons that I brought it today to read in its entirety, apart from the fact that it inspired me, the New York Times is not exactly mainstream America, but I thought to myself, if enough people read that and tell enough other people who tell enough other people who put it out on their emails, we are linked together in so much more um, extensive a web than we used to be. One of the things that I remember feeling so inspired by, still inspires me, is somebody when said when the um, uh, when the Berlin Wall came down and uh, the former Soviet Union was liberated. Somebody said that it happened because of the fax machine, and that. Uh, be, uh, and that prior to that, uh, you couldn't get, you can't send in books. There was a, there, there was a, um, a, um, a limited amount of information that people could have because you can watch who comes to visit and what kind of radio and television people get and what kind of material, reading materials come in. But you cannot monitor the telephone so that as long as there were telephone wires, people could send faxes. And as long as they could send faxes, they could say there is a possibility of freedom. Other people live in democracies. You can do it. And as long as people are in touch with the possibility of freedom, they'll keep going. So I am very, in a certain way, buoyed up by the fact. Sometimes people say, oh, the Internet couldn't be bothered. I, uh, in my, uh, I've been very grateful for my uh, email connections in the last couple of months. People have sustained me. With, uh, people I don't have to respond to send me third hand something really good that somebody else said. And I feel maybe a thousand people got this that said, keep the faith, we can do it. So one other thing that I want to really be sure I read to you, and then I want us to do something together. I think we have to do something on the outside. I think we have to each of us figure out in addition to, uh, at least for me, let me let me not say we. I have to. I am determined that I will do the following. I'll finish the light bulbs. I'll get them changed. I'll keep the thermostat down. Uh, I will drive at sixty-five miles an hour, which will keep my gas consumption better. Um, I'll do those kinds of things. I think the other piece, and when when we need to, we'll make collective statements as a, as a group. The other thing that I have to make sure is that I, I keep myself clear about them not being good guys and bad guys, that, that 
whatever is happening um, is a collective karma, and that um, um, just as I need to forgive myself for the parts, uh, for the things I have not yet done in terms of changing the world, I have to even forgive the world for the way that it hasn't yet finished changing itself. It doesn't do it any good for me to be mad at it. I think probably the history of the world is a history of shocking wake-ups when we look around and say, wait a minute, how did this happen? Where was I when this happened? How come I didn't do something earlier? I've, uh, I thought, as I thought about what I would talk to you today, it came to my mind to read you a piece from uh, a book now out of print. It's 30 years old. It's a book called A Terrible Beauty. Uh, James Carroll, who wrote it, is an author that you probably know. He's written lots of novels. Um, he's very well known as a novelist. He was, for some period of time, a Paulist priest. And uh, this was a, a book that he wrote when he was a priest, um, a young man, about 30. It was published in 1971. It has to do with looking at yourself and uh, thinking, who am I really? And, well, it's, I tell you that because I won't read all of it, so I set you a context. Anyway, I think this makes the point of the other half. I think we have to go out and do something outside. I think we have to do something inside. It's talking about an experience of riding on a New York subway and uh, too crowded and close to people and uh, uh, having a woman right near him particularly uh, attractive to him, staring at him, and jostling against him as the train, they were all crowded in together. So he's thinking about this and looking at her and looking away, and she's smiling and he nods and thinking about her. And surprisingly, he says, she spoke to him and said, says she spoke to me. She said, are you a Christian? Stunned, he said. I said, "Uh huh." Are you a Christian? She asked again. Since my fantasies are dreadfully predictable, I had expected to her to say, "I love you," or "I want your body," or "Come home with me." I never thought she'd ask if I was a Christian. And so, without planning it or being careful, I answered her with the kind of spontaneous and immediate simplicity that is peculiar to the truth. I said, "No, I am not." My ancestors would have called it denying the faith. They would have died first. But they'd have understood, since they were people too, what the dread moment of truthfulness is like. No, I am not, I said. Though I am a Catholic, and though by profession, or by lack of it, I am a a religious man. Yet there I was saying, no, I am not a Christian. (laughs) And it was not so much that I knew not the man, denying So there's a line of scripture as well. It was that I knew not myself. When I reached quickly into my own core, I was surprised. I said, no, I am not. And with equal immediacy, spontaneity, and truthfulness, the lovely young woman looked away from me, feeling noble and let down. I knew that the definitions with which she had been afflicted made it necessary that from the moment of my denial we would be strangers and we would forever until I was converted to the one way. She looked away from me, 
And I wanted to grab her shoulder and say, hey, you, I will never convert that way. I will never surrender denial or doubt or my dread ability to betray the words I use and the people I love. These times have made us strangers to ourselves. We have turned out so unlike what we expected. This is when it began to sound familiar to me. Here he is talking in 1970. These times have made us strangers to ourselves. We have turned out so unlike what we expected. So much in us and out of us has changed. The words we use, even familiar ones like Christian, Catholic, religious, believer, have vague meanings that surprise us continually. As we cannot use them as, as when we cannot use them of ourselves. And so I said, no, I'm not a Christian, not in that young woman's way, not in my parents' way, not in the bishop's way. In whose way then? Am I a Christian in my own way? What is that like? What does it have to do with the church? How do we use the old words of ourselves while telling the truth? We must approach the fragile language of belief with care, else at our touch it crumbles into cliches which kill us and worse, make us boring. Are you a Christian? Hell, I don't know. I do know I am a changed man, and I am in search of words with which to speak of this change I carry in myself. I think I wanted to read it because I think we are all changed people since then. Slightly shaken up. Irrevocably not what we were before. So he talks about the word conversion. How do you make sense of the change you've experienced? Remembering where you come from, how do you account for where you are going? Speaking for myself, he said, the only way I know of myself as, is as a converted man. Are you a Christian? I don't know. But I am a convert. And that will have to be enough. It is, but convert to what? Convert, perhaps, to gentleness. I think that's really what September 11th has made us. I hope it has. I hope it has made us converts to gentleness. My friends in New York tell me that it's holding, you know, at, at, just at the time of September 11th. One of the things that we all heard on the broadcast was that New Yorkers <laughs> were walking around in the street looking at each other in the eye which they don't normally do, hadn't normally done, and talking to each other in elevators. And uh, um, one commentator said, people are walking in the street looking at each other in the eye as if to say, are you still in there? You know, are you alive? Are you awake? You're going to stay up with me. Again, who is asleep? Will you stay awake with me? Why are you not awake? In New York, it's extremely hard not to see what happened. Some friends of mine called me the other day and said, uh, we're on our way to uh, New York. They live in Massachusetts. We haven't been there since then. Uh, give us a call back. And they left the uh, car phone number. So I called them. And uh, they said, you know, uh, we'll call you back in a little while. We've just come around uh, wherever it is across a certain bridge. And uh, we're just now seeing the New York skyline. And this is not a time to talk. You know, we can't talk right now. It's the first. I mean, you see it. It's not there. They're not there. 
5,000 people not there, 10,000 children without parents or parents. So how to, how to see that? With it? It's impossible to see it without being brokenhearted. This little girl with her father is the emblem of uh, brokenheartedness. But I am hopeful that what we will become are a, a, a world of New Yorkers, bright and alive and creative people who are prepared to look each other in the eye and say, I'm brokenhearted, and, and act out of that place. So my friends tell me it's holding. People are still talking in the elevators and looking at each other and a little bit kinder. That really may be the abiding lesson. It won't bring back those people, but it's the abiding, I hope the abiding lesson. The thing is that human beings have this incredible capacity to cry and to laugh. You know, I, I imagine when I showed you this picture, maybe you felt a little bit weepy about this little girl, because you know little girls. Even when I hear about it, accepting this medal was for Officer Smith, her husband Brian Smith and her daughter Patricia Smith. I get goosebumps for that, because those two people don't have her anymore. And we also laughed together in this hour. It's amazing that we can laugh. There's an article in this month's Shambhala Sun about, um, called Send in the Clowns. And uh, it's about uh, payasos. Remember what payasos are? Payasos? Clowns. Payasos are clowns. These are uh, clowns. They're uh, Dharma clowns. They're Bernie Glassman and uh, three other people. Pa- payasos sin fronteras. Clowns without borders. <laughs> Remember last week? Last week, by the way, we collected $254 for Doctors Without Borders. And I sent it to them with a letter that it was from the Wednesday morning class. It's for, uh, Next week we'll do something else. I should have looked to see if Clowns Without Borders has a, a way. So Bernie Glassman and um, three other people are on a pickup truck going around, uh, where are they here? They are in uh, San Cristobal. They're in Mexico here. And there's a whole story, which I haven't got time to tell you about what's happening in San Cristobal and the the pain that they've had in the last several years. But uh, I will pass it around just so you can see at least, or I'll hold it up for you. It's a picture of their uh, one of their final acts of two of them uh, juggling uh, bowling pins back and forth, but juggling bowling pins and then throwing them back and forth in the way that jugglers throw bowling pins. They're bowling pins, yeah, back and forth. And um, Bernie Bernie's part here he is in disguise with a big clown nose and all is to uh, walk through them. And Bernie is being trained as a clown by these people. He's been studying. Um, clowning with them. One of them, one of the people whose name at this moment I've forgotten, is the chief clown trainer at Wavy Gravy's Winter Rainbow Camp. So they're really professional clowns. And Bernie is learning clowning, which is a very serious art. And uh, it's, it's pantomime clown because it, it speaks past all languages. 
So I will read you the little part about the final end of um, the... Uh, wait, wait, wait. No, the... the um, <laughs> okay. The finale is the best. Um, who you... Who you... Yoo-hoo! And Smedley O are juggling white pins, throwing several back and forth at the same time. When Ber uh, Ber Bernie, the booby sattva, shows up out of nowhere, a big Churchill cigar in his mouth, and starts walking between them nonchalantly. The white pins are thrown all around him. I recall Moshe's words to Bernie from the morning. You need uh, not just more expressions on your face, but more gradations in the expression. So when you walk between us as we juggle, you start off being arrogant and completely sure of yourself, and then in the middle I want you to get scared, but not immediately. Play with it. First you start getting nervous, then really nervous, then you're actually scared. The contrast between how you start off all sure of yourself and then the final panic when you find yourself in the middle of this, that's what's funny. <laughs> so now Bernie the Bubisattva saunters, be uh, saunters between the pins like it's a sunny day in Santa Barbara, not a care in the world, the big cigar perched complacently in his mouth. He crosses between the two payasos again and again, and then suddenly he's in trouble. His eyes veer from side to side and then stare fixedly ahead. He's afraid to move. The cigar trembles in his mouth. He turns white, and now he begins to quake with fright. The children and the adults are laughing louder, some slapping their sides. He shakes even worse, the cigar going up and down convulsively. Now he's truly frightened. The payasos throw the pins in the air all around him, catching and throwing trying to get one closer and closer to his cigar. They're trying to strike the cigar from his mouth, but they can't get close enough. Only it doesn't matter because the audience is laughing harder and harder. And just when Bubisattva is so convulsed with fear and panic that he, we're sure he'll make a run for it and get hit by the white juggling pins, one pin hits the cigar cleanly and it jumps out of his mouth. The place collapses in laughter. No applause, just laughter that rolls on and on at arrogance brought low. Jose Luis jumps up and down with his baby sister in his reboso while his friends rush down the slope to get closer to the payasos. We understand emotions without languages. We understand we have a universal way of connecting with arrogance brought low, uh, with what it means to saunter, with what it means to get frightened, with what it means to be panicky. We think it's very funny. Uh, all of the clown jokes... That are full of pratfalls. That you know, you can do a long routine with a box where one person sitting on the box stands up, the other person takes the box away, the other person sits down, the box isn't there, they fall down. That's the kind of thing that children find hysterically funny. You know, that it's because we are human beings and fallible. Um, <laughs> I am just remembering I didn't bring you the email because I thought I'd be embarrassed to read it. My daughter sent me a, <laughs> a very long essay she'd written about. Uh, uh, my grandson, Harrison, who you probably met from time to time, he comes to class four, goes to a very uh, wonderful preschool that has all kinds of spiritual values. <laughs> she said, this is what happened today in the Mother Earth of all spiritual preschools. Uh, the teacher, uh, when she arrived, the teacher said, uh, showed her that uh, she had shown the children something she'd brought from her last teaching job in New York, which apparently is a plastic small balloon, or it's a balloon-type thing about this big, about the size of a, um, oh, of a uh, cell phone, 
that is a remote-controlled fart machine <laughs> that with a battery-operated controller, you can cause that to make flatulent sounds from across the room. And it, it remains enduringly funny to four-year-old boys. It's hysterical to them. And the teacher <coughs> was showing it to Liz because she said Harrison liked it better than anybody in the whole class. He really loved it. And on the basis of that, if that was all right with Liz, he could borrow it overnight and take it home. So he took it home, put it under his father's chair at dinner, and it remained endlessly funny because he'd be at different places in the room doing his remote control, and here come these sounds. And uh, his younger sister thought it was very funny, and he cracks up about this, and his parents thought the whole thing was very funny. But I, and my daughter wrote the whole essay for me, which I, I thought was actually very funny, about the, this from the Mother Earth of Spiritual Preschools that have universal prayer and solstice celebrations, <laughs> remote control. <laughs> but in fact, it's the universal language of I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed, I've lost control of myself. I think that why it's, that's why it's funny to four-year-olds, because they're still worried about losing control of themselves in different ways. Um, we all get embarrassed. We all lose control of ourselves. We all do things that make us feel humiliated. If we all look around and say, you know, we're just people. We're trying the best we can. If we get converted to gentleness about ourselves, um, then the task that remains is to get converted to gentleness about everybody. Everybody wants to laugh at the clowns and have time to cry about what grieves them. And we do that uniquely as human beings. It's incredible to be a person. I was going to read to you, um, maybe do it next week, maybe Tuesday during the night. There have been, every day in the New York Times, one... Uh, one it has been one page of about two paragraphs, three paragraphs, and a little photo of someone who died. And you can look them up on the website. And each one of them is different. And you realize that you can say a number, like 5,000 people, but you don't know that that person was uniquely them. They did something that nobody else in the world did. One particular man... In, this more, in uh, yesterday's New York Times, uh, one had been with his um, married for 10 years, and his, his wife had a passion for uh, um, um, uh, passion for fashion, really. She loved clothing, and he did. He really enjoyed that she loved it. He said, as a matter of fact, uh, when she went to shop, he'd go into the dressing rooms with her and help her choose what looked good. And uh, when he filed the missing persons report, he was able to describe her in detail, a redhead, very lean, about 110 pounds, wearing a black pinstripe Gucci suit with tapered pants and a white cotton blouse with a spread collar. He even knew the color and the make of their, her underwear. The people who took the missing persons report were astounded. You know, it's like everybody in their own particular amazing way is unique. What I wanted for us to do, it's one minute to 11, but maybe sit one more minute. What I wanted us for us to do, maybe I'll give you a hint. I, I say to my husband, 
when you do my eulogy, I want you to tell everybody that I was a really good cook. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it's true. I, you know, I, I just, I learned to do that early. I enjoyed it. I'm a really good cook. Surprise you? We're looking forward to next Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> what I would like you to think about in the next minute is something about you that you don't often tell people. That if, if it were you, if it had been you in the World Trade Center, and somebody was saying about you something, well, they'd have to be something, they, they'd something very nice usually about them. They played a lot with his children. He came home, no matter how tired he was, he did video games with his children. Think of something very nice about you that someone could say, you know what it's about, David? Unfailingly this or that, or he made the best apple pie in the world, or something and shared it with his friends because i i'm i'm a good cook and i love to cook for my friends in this next minute take a breath in and out tell a person next to you something really good that they could say about you or that you hope somebody will say about you if this roof falls in on us right now may it not happen and then they'll tell you, do it, go, find a person. Do three people if you have to. <laughs> you can stay if you're not finished. <laughs>
an amazing world if everybody turned around while they were online in the supermarket, <laughs> said to each other, you know, what's the best thing about you, you know? Imagine. And they don't have to wait till we're dead, really. That's a whole other story, remember? But, but you know, you know, but we we could be converted to. Um, I'll tell you the other thing I'd like to be. Uh, in addition to converted to gentleness, I'd like to be converted to hope. So actually, let's end with a moment of um, preparation for the light. Oh, I didn't even realize that when I said this. Václav Havel said uh, the definition of hope was being able to say no. And what he said, and he continued it, he said it was being able to say no to what's directly in front of you and un- unavoidably there. And what you're saying no to is no, this is not the whole of it. No, there is a thing, space around it. There is more. There is a way to see through the darkness into the light or around the darkness into the light or bring the light with us into the darkness so that we can go through it together. Mostly, I think, so we can go through it together. So you want to hold hands with somebody next to you? Just for a minute. Let's make a hope that we go through this week and through the rest of this year and through the turning into the light and through the rest of our lives with increased light in our hearts, with increased hope in our hearts, with increased light in the world and a world dedicated to peace and to love and to caring and to sharing and to healing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.